to Exodus chapter 9. As we've been working our way through Exodus, we've been looking at the mighty acts of God against the nation of Egypt. We've looked at the power struggle that's been going on between Pharaoh, the Lord of Egypt, who held the uh, Israelites in captivity and slavery, and Yahweh, their covenant Lord who demanded their release from slavery. We are coming to, uh, we've passed the halfway mark uh, with these plagues. And you will see an intensification and some reflection on the meaning of them. So join me now as we read Exodus 9, chapters 1, or verses 1 through 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln. And let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. 
Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit. We may understand, believe, and obey all that you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. The cumulative impact of these plagues was absolutely devastating to Egypt. First, the Nile River, the lifeblood, I didn't mean to do that, the the lifeline of, of Egypt Trade, agriculture, everything was based around the Nile turned to blood. And the people were forced to dig wells to get clean water. Then the land was infested with frogs everywhere. And then they all died and stank the place up. And then there was swarms of gnats everywhere and on everything. And then there were swarms of flies everywhere and on everyone. Any single one of these plagues would have been a noteworthy disaster, would have been a severe inconvenience, if nothing else. But that they all happened back to back to back was simply unprecedented. There was no question that what was happening in Egypt was not natural. Nobody thought, wow, this is a weird time of year, isn't it? Gnats are worse than usual. The flies are worse than usual. I wish the frogs would have been after the flies. That would have been more convenient to help with all these flies here. But the point was that it's not natural. The point was that it would be very clear that this was the direct intervention of God. And God was not arbitrarily selecting Egypt to afflict. No, he had very specific plans and goals in all that was happening. Sometimes in, in reflecting on, on the book of Exodus and the plagues in particular, scholars have come up with various explanations, um, even to, well, there was a far-off volcano that somehow caused a, a trickle-down effect that somehow caused all of these things. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe there was a more um, uh, earth material that was kicked up in the Nile River from the eruption of this thing, and, and then it it made a bunch of frogs come out of the river, and then um, they died, and so then all the gnats came. And the fl- there have been many explanations like this, but those naturalistic explanations really miss the point of what the text is doing. The point of the text is not that um, Moses happened to know somehow that there was going to be a volcano somewhere that would cause all these natural events to take place, and then he very, very... Um, cleverly made it look like he was warning of, of God was going to do all these things. But meanwhile, he's like an incredibly accurate forecaster of natural events. He would have to be a very high-level scientist to be able to, to do all these things. No, that's not the point. The point is God himself, the Lord of all of creation, had determined that he was going to do something to show his power, to show who he is. God was making a point about his presence so that not only Israel would know who Yahweh is, but Egypt and all the world would know who Yahweh is. The entire world would learn that the word of the Lord is to be honored 
and obeyed. This was the point. God was making this unprecedented action of calling a group, a people of slaves, out from their slavers, not one by one, but as a corporate whole, calling them out and then bringing them into a land of their own, a land that, by the way, was already inhabited by an established people with fortified walls and armies and established social structure. God was going to do all this to make the point, it's not them, it's me. The point is not that Moses is a skilled diplomat or something or a, a skilled politician. The point is God is doing all of these things for his own purposes. God gets the glory So as we look at the fifth plague here, the plague against the Egyptian livestock, we have to come to a conclusion that Pharaoh could not deny the Lord's word. As much as he would want to deny that this Yahweh, this unknown God, had authority over him, by now he has heard this message enough times, this let my people go or else this will happen, and then it happens to get the point of what's going on here. The fifth plague against uh, Egypt was directed against the livestock of the Egyptians. Yahweh had told Moses once again to deliver uh, the message to Pharaoh, um, to go into him, presumably in his palace. We've seen this before um, in Exodus uh, Exodus 8, verses 1 and 2, were given the same sort of language. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, I will plague your country with frogs. You see exactly the same kind of language repeated. Because there's essentially three cycles of three with the plagues. Um, And the cycle always starts over with Moses being told, Go to Pharaoh early in the morning and say to him. And then it's followed by go into Pharaoh in his palace, presumably, but just go to him, no time given, and then followed by don't, no preamble, no let my people go, just do something. That's what we saw with the gnats, and it's what we're going to see with the boils. And then, but there's 10, 10 total plagues, and then the, the 10th plague, the Passover, uh, the death of the firstborn is set apart. It's in a league of its own. But the, the three cycles of three have an intensification, and each one is, a, is worse than the last one. The first three could be characterized as being more of an inconvenience. The next three start getting painful, literally painful, physically painful, economically quite painful. The last three are devastating, and the last one is the worst of all. But we see that that God is making this message very clear to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has heard this before, this let my people go that they may serve me. This is not new. It is not a mystery to Pharaoh. Just what does this Yahweh want of me? Pharaoh has heard this repeatedly and yet also repeatedly refused to heed the warning and suffered the consequences. Now, Uh, Twice we've seen Pharaoh say, okay, enough, enough, fine, you win, take them. Just take away the plague. Then Moses says, okay, praise, plague goes away. Pharaoh goes, psych, I'm I'm not going to live up to my end of the bargain. I'm going to hold on. I will not obey. I will not yield. 
So the, the heart of Pharaoh is being laid bare. That Pharaoh is selfish. He does not care about the suffering of his people. He doesn't care about the suffering of Israel. He is stubborn. He is a promise breaker. Yahweh's power, his stock is rising. Which With each plague, you see his power. And you see his language of my people, Israel, repeated over and over again to show that he cares about his people, and that if he says that he will do something, he will do something. He is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker like Pharaoh. Yahweh's expectations were very clear to Pharaoh. He simply refused to listen. And he actually wasn't asking something that was all that complicated in its, in its base. Let my people go. That's it. Just let them go. Yahweh's goal was for his people to be freed from Pharaoh's oppressive rule and freed to serve Yahweh, their Lord who loves and cares for them. And we see this language of or else, again, being strongly put forward, but this time that the hand of the Lord would fall upon them with a very severe plague. This is a very personal way of saying it's going to be worse than you've had before. My hand is going to be against you. Remember with the gnats, the magicians of of Egypt had said, the finger of God is doing all this, and we we can't replicate it. It's too much for us. So now God goes, you thought my finger was tough. Wait till you get my whole hand coming against you. Powerful uh, warning here. This would be a devastating blow against the people of Egypt. To have their livestock in the field struck down would be absolutely devastating. It has a certain fittingness. Uh, If you remember our sermon series in Genesis, you'll remember that when uh, the Israelites first came um, to uh, the land of Egypt, they were put in charge of Pharaoh's uh, livestock. Uh, So back in Genesis 47, we read this. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, this is a different Pharaoh, obviously, there's hundreds of years before, this is a, a different guy, different disposition. My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. From the other uh, things that were happening in Egypt at that time, you'll also remember that as the famine was severe in the land, the people of Egypt sold all of their livestock to Pharaoh in exchange for him uh, providing food for them. So in essence, what happened was that all of the livestock of Egypt 
was put in charge of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh put all his livestock in the hands of the sons of Israel. Later, Pharaoh then turns on the Israelites and oppresses them, subjects them to harsh labor and even to genocide. And so now we come full circle and see that the livestock of Egypt is struck down by the Lord. Significantly, notice that it is the livestock in the field that's struck down. Plague upon your livestock that are in the field. That is significant because later on we see the livestock of the Egyptians mentioned again. And you could go, well, I thought all the livestock died with the fifth plague. No, just all of them that were in the field. So if you had them stabled, they were going to be okay, is is the basic rationale here. There was going to be a distinction made between Israel and the Egyptians as there was in the fourth plague with the flies. None of the livestock belonging to the Israelites would suffer the same fate as the Egyptian livestock. The point being, God can tell the difference between his people and not his people. And he would protect his own people. It showed that God was able to afflict and to spare as he so desired. That power was was in his hand. It's a powerful reminder that God is beyond our ability to fully comprehend what is in his capacity to do and not do. He is able to afflict one and then spare the other, even when they dwell side by side. The affliction of the Egyptian livestock brings full circle their affliction of Israel. Their own sins would come upon them. What really sets this plague apart from the previous plagues, though, we've seen elements of this before. We've seen the distinction. We've seen the warning, uh, let my people go or I'll suffer the consequences. But what really sets this one apart is that Pharaoh sent to check, to see if the, the word of the Lord was actually true, that Israel's livestock was spared while Moses uh, had said that Egypt's livestock would be uh, struck down by the hand of the Lord. There's an interesting language thing going on here that English doesn't really bring out. First of all, when, when um, the Lord says, let my people go, the actual word is closer to send my people out. It's the Hebrew word shalat. And shalat is in the command voice there. It's in the imperative, meaning Send them, I command you to send them out. And the same word is used for Pharaoh in verse 7. Pharaoh sent, he shalot, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. He discovered that the Lord's word was true. And so now we have Pharaoh being willing to send his people to check on Yahweh's people, but refusing to send Yahweh's people away to spare his people from Yahweh's plague. It's kind of a confusing sentence, I I know, but um, there is this interesting irony that if he would just shalot the right people, it would all be over. But he refuses to send the right people. Pharaoh was learning, though, that God had done exactly what he said he would, 
and he would always do exactly what he said he would, and yet he still continued in his stubborn refusal to send Yahweh's people out. But he could not deny that everything God said, everything that Yahweh said would happen, would happen. Learning that God means what he says is a very important aspect of faith. Until we come to a point where we respect the word of the Lord, true belief is impossible. You cannot trust in what you don't think is reliable. Only a fool would do that. But it's not the only step. Even an acknowledgement of the truth of what God says is not enough if there is not accompanied obedience to what God says. Pharaoh knew that the words of Yahweh were true and powerful, and yet he still stubbornly refused to submit and obey that word. There are a lot of people who take the Bible seriously. If you quote the Bible, they'll go, Oh, wow, yeah, the Bible. Yeah, they'll give lip service. Wow, the Bible's uh, different than other, than other uh, literature. The Bible is something special. That's something. I'm glad you respect the Bible as, as being something set apart. But if there is a refusal to obey what the Bible says, it actually becomes a judgment they deprive themselves of the benefits of placing themselves under God's protection, subjecting ourselves instead to the greater punishment of knowing the good and refusing to do that good. It's one thing to know the right thing to do, but until that right thing is actually done, we're actually in a worse position because God holds people accountable for what they know. So the word of the Lord was powerful, but also the power of the Lord was undeniable. We come to the sixth plague, which again has no warning attached to it, only instructions for Moses and Aaron to go to uh, Pharaoh and perform this throwing of the soot, of the ash of the kiln into the air in front of in front of Pharaoh. We see similar um, language in the, uh, sixth, uh, the third plague of the gnats. Say to Pharaoh, stretch out your hand. Uh, say, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats and all the land of Egypt. Again, we have this language of it starts small and like a ripple effect, it affects everything. It goes everywhere. And you're to do this ritual thing in the sight of Pharaoh so he understands what the source is. What is a kiln, though? A kiln is an oven to bake bricks. One of the defining characteristics of the slavery of Israel in Egypt was them making bricks to build with. If you remember, the first time Moses came to Pharaoh and gave this message of let my people go, Pharaoh said, ah, they're lazy, take away the straw that they're going to make bricks with. But they still have to make the same number of bricks and make sure that you punish them for failing to meet quota. And then the uh, Israelite um, uh, foremen come to Pharaoh and they say, hey, we're being beaten mercilessly, but we don't have any straw, so we have to go out and find our straw. So you're, you're doubling our work. We, there's only so many hours in the day. This is not fair. And Pharaoh said, no, you're lazy. Get back to work. 
And so this, the kiln becomes a, a symbol of their oppression, of their cruel slavery in Egypt. And it also becomes a symbol of pain for the Egyptians. That the ash of the kiln where so many men of Israel had slaved was cause to bring painful boils on the Egyptians was quite poetic. The Egyptians had caused pain to the Israelites for many years and now Yahweh was causing them pain because of Pharaoh's refusal to let Israel go. What kind of sores are we talking about is unimportant. But it was very painful. Uh, The same wording is used in the book of Job where Job has these open sores that are just extremely painful for him. Um, It's speculated there's all sorts of skin diseases that you could get. But the, the point is that this afflicts all of the Egyptians from the high to the low with great pain. The Egyptians uh, were unable to stand before, Pharaoh, before Moses, both literally and metaphorically. If you remember, the, the magicians of Egypt had been a symbol of the power of Pharaoh to stand against the power of Yahweh and replicate all of the things that, that Moses and Aaron did as proof of presence for Yahweh, the uh, magicians of Egypt were also trying to do, and they were successful in several attempts. With the uh, third plague of the gnats was the first time that they said, we can't handle this. With this plague, the sixth plague of the boils, they're not able to even stand up in the presence And this is the last time we see them in the book of Exodus. They never appear again. And they are completely broken. They're beaten down by the power of the Lord. For the first time, we see Yahweh, the Lord, hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Much has been made of this. It's probably significant to say, though, that this doesn't happen until the sixth plague. What's happened in plagues one through five? Pharaoh's capable of hardening his own heart. He's stubborn all on his own. Up until this point, Pharaoh needed no assistance, maintaining his hard heart. But now it seems that Pharaoh was beaten down, that he, like his magicians, couldn't stand before Moses. God hardened his heart because the time had not yet come for God to bring uh, Israel out. Pharaoh still had to see some things. There were signs that had not been done yet that God was determined to do. We should understand that God hardening Pharaoh's heart was not the root cause of Pharaoh's stubbornness. The root cause of his stubbornness was his his sinful pride, his sinful refusal to bow before God. In this instance, God was fortifying that stubbornness that was already there to accomplish his plans. The power and the presence of Yahweh mean that the will of Yahweh is always carried out. And in this instance, the will of Yahweh was for Pharaoh to maintain his hard-hearted stance, to not listen. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them 
as the Lord had spoken to Moses. We see that phrase over and over again, as he had spoken to Moses, emphasizing the point that Pharaoh's hardness of heart was in the plan of God all along, that God was accomplishing things even through the stubborn pride of Pharaoh. This again just reminds us of who's really in charge of all things. It's not as if we can say that we are the ones in the driver's seat. God is the one in the driver's seat, even over someone like Pharaoh. But what is the point of it all? We're going to only look at the first half of the seventh plague, the first plague of the last cycle of three. But I wanted to look at the, the first part here, uh, separate from the second part, because there's, it's so meaty. There's so much there to chew on, to ponder. So again, we're given this formula of rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh. This formula has been seen before, but this is the last time we're going to see that formula because this is the last one in the cycle. Moses was to go and deliver this message, but this time the message was going to be much more robust than what is delivered before. Previously, it had just been a simple message. Let my people go that they may serve me, or else fill in the blank with this plague. Now, God is making plain his purposes in these mighty acts. The Lord's glory is the point of all of this. The purpose of all that had been done has been that Pharaoh would know that there is none like Yahweh in all the earth. Look at verse 14. For the time I for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God was determined to make himself known in very unmistakable, powerful ways. Pharaoh thought of himself as uniquely powerful in all the world. And truth be told, he was unique among men at his time. There were very few kings that could claim to rule a piece of real estate as large as Egypt, as prosperous as Egypt. Pharaoh thought a lot of himself. But he was still just a man, just a created being who could not stand against the creator of all. God wanted Pharaoh to know that he could not stand before Yahweh. He was not his equal. Yahweh is Lord over all the earth. His power has no limit. Pharaoh would say to other kings, you can't have your way in Egypt. I am master of Egypt. My word is law here. And Yahweh says, you can't stop me. Even in your own household, if I say it will be full of frogs, if I say it will be full of gnats and flies, it will be. If I say you will have sores all over you, you can't stop me. I am more than you can handle. And then he makes this amazing statement in verse 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. What does that mean, cut off from the earth? Uh, you'd be dead. You'd be over. So it, this is an amazing statement. After Pharaoh has suffered all of these things, after he's so in pain that he can't stand up, 
God says, I've been exercising restraint. I'm not, I'm not even trying yet. Just wait. If you really want to see something, just wait. You haven't seen anything yet. You know that, uh, that great theological work, The Princess Bride? You know that, you know that one? It has one of the greatest sword fights in, in cinematic history where uh, Inigo Montoya, who has dedicated his life to sword craft to avenge his father by the six-fingered man, um, is, is uh, fighting with the, uh, the man in black who he doesn't know who he is, man of mystery, who we later learn is, uh, I, won't, I won't spoil it for you, <laughs> but they have this, this great sword fight, and it's back and forth, and they respect each other's skills, and they're going back and forth and back and forth, and the man in black is, is, is pushing... Um, no, that doesn't that happen until later. Sorry, I messed up. So a man in black is winning, and Inigo Montoya says, uh, I just want you to know something. I am not left-handed. Aha! And then he switches to the right hand, and he goes, ha, ha, ha. And then the man in black later says, I'm not left-handed either. Ha, ha. And they have this, this thing. God is saying... All this stuff, that was my left hand. Wait till I use my right hand. You're really going to see something then. If I wanted to, I could have ended you. And then he makes perhaps uh, the most shocking statement. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That is a shocking statement proclamation for Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, to hear, you know, all of your power, all of your success, all those things you're so proud of, that wasn't your doing. This Yahweh has raised you up for the sole purpose of showing not your power, but showing his power so that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Could there be a greater blow to a prideful man's ego than to say, none of that was your doing, and your downfall is actually the whole point of all of it. I'm going to take it all away to show my power. The pride and the power of Pharaoh were only tools that Yahweh was using for his own ends. Pharaoh may think that he is great, but his power is simply puny compared to Yahweh's. Yahweh was about to show greater displays of power than he had yet shown. And so he says, um, you are still exalting yourself against my people. And will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Upper Egypt, uh, which is southern Egypt, if you're looking at at a map, gets about one inch of precipitation a year on a normal year, sometimes none. They watered their 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 crops by the uh, flooding of the Nile. Lower Egypt. Goshen area, where uh, the, the Delta region is, gets maybe four or five inches of rain a year. That's, that's arid. That's, that's hot. Uh, if you're picturing a, a place that's arid and hot, that's all right. That's, that's the right picture. They don't know what heavy rain looks like. They definitely don't know what hail looks like. What is hail that you 
say, we'll, we'll come here. God was going to bring something on them that they have never even imagined. Yahweh was going to bring a heavy storm, and yet not just any storm, a hailstorm. God was incredibly gracious, though, even in the midst of this announcing of this tremendous act against them that would just beat down all the crops and everything. And he says in verse 19, Now therefore send, shalat again, um, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. That's pretty gracious. There's going to be a tremendous storm. It's going to wreck everything. Come in. And this becomes a litmus test. This becomes a test of faith for the Egyptians. Do you respect Yahweh's word enough now to obey? Are you willing to admit that when Yahweh says something, you better heed that warning? And apparently, some of the Egyptians did. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the house. Some of the servants of Yahweh, of, of Pharaoh, feared Yahweh enough to obey his word. I wonder how many at this point were, were like, okay, uh, we, we need to obey what Yahweh says because he has done more than enough to make his, his power known. They had seen and heard enough to take his words seriously and respond with obedience. That's the right response. That's the response that Yahweh wants. When I speak, you listen and you obey. And these were spared the destruction of the hail. And we're given an interesting thing. Uh, when they finally do go free, when the Israelites leave Egypt, they don't go alone. Um, flip over to Exodus chapter 12 for a moment. We're given this amazing statement. It's, it's quick, and you blink and you might miss it. But in Exodus 12, 37, and 38, we read this. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. That mixed multitude were non-Israelites who believed in Yahweh and went with them. You don't usually think about the plagues against Egypt being evangelism. It's definitely not very seeker-friendly, um, but it was effective. A mixed multitude would signify we're not talking about a handful. It's a multitude. How many is in a multitude? I don't know. I would guess in the thousands at least. But it was enough to be classified and worth mentioning that they didn't go alone. So my guess would be that these same folks in verse 20 of chapter 9 who feared the word of the Lord are the mixed multitude who wanted to be on board with what God, this Yahweh, was doing, who were tired of following this Pharaoh and his foolish stubbornness. They wanted to follow where the power was. But not everyone listened. Now, you would look at it, and I would look at it, and I would logically conclude, uh, 
I mean, by this point, how much more evidence do you need that you should really follow what Yahweh says? What kind of foolish person would fail to heed the warning? All he's asking you to do is come inside so that you don't get annihilated. And yet, whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. There were still those who were just like their master Pharaoh and said, I don't care. Yahweh, psh, I'm going to do what I want to do. I will not yield. I will not obey. And they suffered the consequence for that stubbornness. Despite the evidence, despite the clear instruction of the Lord, they maintained their um, independence. Great. Have fun with all of your stuff beaten to the ground. The people of Israel were to be a testimony of God's power and faithfulness for the nations to see. And we, we get these little glimpses throughout the Old Testament of other nations occasionally coming to Israel or saying, we've heard about you. The model worked. It was a come and see model where the nations were supposed to look at what God was doing with his people Israel and go, wow, that is something special. And many actually did believe. It's a powerful word when you see what the Lord has done. And yet, again, you only get the benefits of the power of Yahweh if you submit and obey what he has said. Or reject it to your own harm. The right response to God's word is what these Yahweh-fearing Egyptians have, which is, okay, I'm going to believe and obey what God has said. This puts us under his protection and his blessing. True belief, true repentance requires humility. Humility because until we come to a point where we go, I'm not all right on my own, you cannot receive the gift of eternal life. As long as we stubbornly maintain, I will do it my way, there can be no repentance. There can be no true conversion. Even if we say, yes, the Lord is true, the Lord's word is powerful, the next question is equally important. But do you believe and obey? Are you trusting in that word? In James, we get this haunting thing. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The difference is, are you in obedience? Are you in submission to the word of the Lord? It means that we must stop exalting ourselves like Pharaoh and submit to God's will. But the more that we learn about God, the more that we see that trusting in him is good for us. It's worth it. Because he is kind, he is merciful, gracious, and keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. That is a foundational element of faith. Until we believe that we can actually trust him, we certainly cannot receive what he offers. John 3.16 is a much-quoted verse for good reason. It encapsulates in, in brief form 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I wanted to, to look at not only John 3.16, but the verses following through verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his, world, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What is Jesus saying here? There's two possible responses to the gospel. Believe or remain in darkness. Those who remain in darkness are those who reject the message of the gospel, who do not believe, and they stand condemned already. Many times people have a, a thought that perhaps they can just be neutral. You know, they're not, they're not a, a, a Satan worshiper, right? Hey, I'm, you know, I'm not really a Christian, but, you know, he's all right. I don't hate him. The Bible says, no, there is, there is no third, there is no other. You're either a believer or you remain condemned. Condemned for the sin, the rebellion of our hearts, that is our natural position. It is belief that saves. And that is a powerful testimony that whoever believes, whether you are an Israelite, whether you are a Gentile, whether you're an Egyptian, a Roman, a Greek, a whatever... If you believe, you have eternal life. That is powerful. That God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is the purpose of Jesus sending his son. The world didn't need help in being condemned. The default position is already condemnation. The abnormal thing, the question that we should really ask, is why does God want to save any of us? None of us are worth it. We're all natural sinners. That's the real question. And the only answer is for his glory. For his, he wants to show his love and his mercy to sinners such as us. And so he says, believe, receive the eternal life that I alone can give. Come into the light, out of the darkness, Stubbornly holding on to our sinful ways results only in destruction. There's no life there. There's no hope there. Coming to Jesus and seeking the life that only he can give gives life and hope and meaning and peace. All the things that we long for are found in him. Just as the Egyptians who heeded the word of the Lord were spared the destruction of the hail, so is everyone who believes in Jesus Christ spared the destruction of the from the wrath of God against sin. Don't be stubborn. Don't be Pharaoh. Be those who fear the word of the Lord enough to submit ourselves to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Lord, you do not have to offer 
a way out, but you do because of your love. We thank you, O Lord, for this. Lord, I pray that we would be those who trust your word, who submit ourselves to you in humble obedience. Lord, we confess that we too are stubborn. We too struggle with our pride. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to you, acknowledging what is reality, which is that you are God and we are not. Oh Lord, have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Closing hymn is about the Lordship of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Would you please stand as we sing together? <laughs>